Hello and welcome to Real Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your host, Sam Mosier, joined again by Caitlin Redwing. So happy to have you back. How are you doing? Hi, good. Yeah, it was very enthusiastic and I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> Felt good to say. <laughs> but I, I think I needed it. It gives some of that Wednesday energy that I'm missing. I'm drinking a Red Bull because I <laughs> I wondered I need what to was in that. the green can. <laughs> yeah, the green can. My new favorite Red Bull flavor. We're really going off topic already. It's dragon fruit. It's very good. Our guest, who I will intro shortly, is shaking his head. Doug, are you not a not a Red Bull guy? <laughs> don't do it, man. Don't drink the Red Bull. Don't drink the Green Bull. Don't like drink the Blue Bull. Don't drink any of that stuff. <laughs> it's very rare that I have to pull one out, but I was feeling feeling like I needed a kick, and I didn't have coffee. I mean, if you want to chug cough syrup, like go right ahead. <laughs> it's fine with me. It's your call. <laughs> well, Caitlin is getting needs that energy today because we have a very special episode ahead of us. Continuing our two-part conversation with last from the last episode, we have Doug Perry joining us, head of public relations at Prolibus America. Last episode, Doug and I discussed the start of his career in games journalism and how that led him to co-founding IGN and becoming an editor-in-chief. Today, we're picking up from there and discussing his moves to games PR, including working as an account director at Reverb Communications and PR director at Warframe developer Digital extremes and his work now at pearl abyss america doug thank you again so much for joining us hi nice to meet you again on this <laughs> glorious podcast and thank you for having me it was really fun i mean everyone always wants to talk about themselves right so this is just like free reign um but but uh, i actually had to really look up a lot of the stuff that we talked about <laughs> so long ago i'm like i don't remember when like what happened in the 11 years that i was at ign so i was like all right here we go i'm gonna look it up and so i was like oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> so some stuff was vague and stuff's been really specific but and i apologize for going long but it was 11 years <laughs> and it was a worthwhile 11 years to cover. And thank you again for bringing the research and the notes rather than trying to do it off the cuff, as I, as I know oh, yeah. some guests would. Yeah. I, I also think you're our first two-parter. Yes. Sam? Yeah. So, you know, you're making history at real-time strategy. It's cool. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of picking up uh, where we last left off on our last episode, we ended with your decision to leave IGN, but there were a couple fun questions about IGN we didn't get in there, didn't have time for, and so rather than doing our two get-to-know-you questions, because we've already gotten to know you on the show, uh, we wanted to ask those two uh, fun IGN questions. First off, starting with, uh, what were your most memorable review experiences at IGN, whether good or bad? Right. Um, so I would, I have like... I reviewed like 120 games or something like that. So uh, if I were to pick the ones that were the most pleasurable <laughs> and the least pleasurable, I would say that reviewing Halo 2 and reviewing Halo 3 were really wonderful experiences because first of all, Halo 2 and Halo 3 are great games. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, they're really fun, beautiful games, both single player and multiplayer. And I was a big fan. And you know, when I, when I ran the Xbox 360 channel with Hillary Goldstein and a bunch of other people, we really did a lot of work um, on Halo. We did tons of writing on Halo. And the reason that they were so exciting is because Bungie is a great developer and, the, and they work with Microsoft and they were, they basically said, from Halo 2, they said, we're going to come down to San Francisco with a game. We're going to rent out a huge conference room at the Clift Hotel 
And then you're going to come over two days and uninterrupted, just play the game for as long as you want. And we'll save your progress if you have to go. So, you know, here I am working at IGN and I'm like, I have to leave to go review Halo. So I drove into the city, got to the cliff. There's this big old room, tons of consoles set up. And there was Halo just waiting for me to play, you know, this two weeks before it came out, Halo 2. And, um, and then they bring lunch in for you and they give you drinks. And it was just like this really pleasurable experience. And I could play up till 10 o'clock at night. So it's sort of like a dream, like a dream job. Like <laughs> you get to play uninterrupted gameplay without doing any other thing. No phone calls, no nothing. And everything just comes to you. Like it's like, yeah, I slipped the pizza under the door, right? Just like that. <laughs> like when was the last time you did that? So that was really fun. Um, and they did the same thing for Halo 3, uh, except that time it was at Bungie Studios. So nice. we got a tour of the studio. We got to meet a bunch of people from the, the development team. And then we just get to play. Um, and I would say that that didn't affect my score at all. It was just a pleasurable experience because they're like, we don't, we just want to give you the game. You get to play it. And then they just left you alone. And there's something beautiful about that. I, I'm curious since review events, you know, given the, you know, digitization of games media, how's everyone is spread out. Also the shrinking of games media budgets and, and not paying for travel for people who are not in said, you know, congregated areas. Uh, we don't, really see review events anymore uh always a question i've been curious about i assume the expectation was you would beat it within those two days was that ever an issue it was a worry i was uh -huh. worried i was like oh i hope i can beat it you know um, but <laughs> but uh you know i i think you know there's there's two components two major components to the halo game which games which are the campaign and you can play it i think on four different difficulty levels I always just played on normal just to get the feel of the balance. And then there's the multiplayer. So, yeah, I think I beat it in, you know, a day and a quarter. Um, and then we, or day and a half, and then we just, for both, and then we just played multiplayer for the rest of the day. And it was with, you know, eight, seven other guys. So, um, yeah. Nice. And then, so what's on the flip side? What was a not good review experience? Um... Okay, so I reviewed two, two games, Driver 3 and Grand Theft Auto Vice City. And Driver 3, you know, the, the team that made Driver was fantastic, a great development studio. Um, I loved Driver 1. I thought it was on the PlayStation, and it was a streaming game, and it was really fun. I don't know if you remember it, but basically you're just in a car and you have all these challenges and you, and you have, it's a hot rod. So it's got a lot of power and it's a lot of skidding, a, not a lot of like control. So you really, and then you have to do, you know, events, you have to do competitions. Once you get out of the garage, like the first part of the game is you're in a garage and you have to pass all the tests. <laughs> and, and it turns out later after the first game, they took all these, they did all these, um, sort of tests with their players and they found out that a lot of people just dropped the game because no one could not everyone could pass the obstacles in the <laughs> tutorial and they couldn't get out of the garage so they could never play the rest of the game and i was like oh my god that sounds terrible i'm sure glad i made it out but uh <laughs> um the first game was really good it had some issues because of ram you know ram and it was a streaming game and 
but it was just really fun. And it had that component to like Grand Theft Auto where you're just driving around, crashing into stuff, you know, causing mayhem, getting the cops to follow you, driving through parks, just creating a lot of chaos and driving around like a maniac. That, that was, those two games had that similarity. Of course, Driver was just driving um, and had a lot of physics to it. Um, so the second one, the second game was bad. Um, it was it was more of the same on the same system, and they just really didn't have that the engine was demanding too much of the PlayStation to to make it run well. So it was like fifteen frames per second, and it was just was a bad game. So they tried to do more with um, Driver Three, and that was on the PlayStation Two. Did a big editorial campaign. They knew we really liked the game or wanted to like the game, um, and so they had the so our company IGN had done a big sales deal with them. They were going to advertise on our site, blah, 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 blah. It was Halo, it was, sorry, it was Driver 3, and I think the D-R-I-V-3-R. Nice. It was like their cool marketing thing. Um, and we got the game, and it was awful. It was bad. Oh, no. So we, uh, so I reviewed it, and I gave it like a 6 or something like that, something, you know, 5.5, 6, basically an F, right, if you're using the... American uh, school mm-hmm. scoring system. And uh, that day, you know, all that editorial team was like, good job, Doug, you know, and everyone on the sales team was like, don't go into the editorial room. Like we had a very strict separation between editorial and sales, mm-hmm. but it was quiet in the sales room because the company at the time, I think it was a Matari, they canceled all the ads. Oh, um, oh. And and some publications that would actually affect your score, but not at IGN. We, you know, there's all these like crazy conspiracies about you know, yeah, all that. But the sales team left us alone. We didn't. They didn't say anything. They didn't come into the editorial room, um, and we, you know, we we held tight. And that that was that was one of those days where I was like, I gave us the right score, and I feel like this is a, not a great game. And the sales team was really sad. So it wasn't like a bad review experience. It was just one of those things where all of the issues that could happen with the review happened, um, except for the fact that no one ever asked me to take it down or change it, which was good. So yeah. it was good and bad. And then with Grand Theft Auto 3 Vice City, I really loved Grand Theft Auto uh, 3. I had a strong relationship with the PR marketing team at um, – Rockstar and Grand Theft Auto Vice City to me was like a really nice sort of 80s skin on top of Grand Theft Auto 3. Um, it wasn't actually technically much better if or if all, but it was really beautiful and sleek and had a great story and had a great sound, just an incredible soundtrack. Um, and it looked, it looked, you know, sort of um, Miami Vice-ish, right? Mm-hmm. So, I gave that the first one three. Uh, I gave Grand Theft Auto three a, a nine point six, like pretty high. Mm-hmm. And and then, th- you know, the Rockstar team is very. They really try to push you. They were pushing me to score it way higher, and I'm like, I'm not. I don't work for you guys. I'm not on your team. Uh, you could say all the things you want, but. Mm-mm. Um. So I gave it like a point one higher. I gave it a 9.7, which is a great score. It's like <laughs> a freaking great score, right? They were so mad at me. 
They were furious. I had ruined their PR campaign. They were so upset with me. And I was like, I was like, guys, like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, I loved covering your game. I think it's a great game. I gave it a really high score. And why are you telling me that you're upset? And uh, so they were, they like, they were audibly upset with me. And, and I called Terry Donovan, who was in the marketing team, and he just yelled at me. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I decided that I was going to write them a big letter. And the letter was like, I love working with you guys. I'm not on your team. I'm independent. I can score however I want. I didn't think this. I didn't think that. I'm really sorry, but I'm not sorry. And we had like a like a six month, eight month like silence period where we did not work with them from the PS2 team, and they didn't work with us, and I didn't talk to them. And if they wanted to talk to somebody, they just talked to somebody else. And it was like, ooh, this is. And in terms of relationships, it was rough, but it was like, sorry, you. You can't give me, you know, 17 cheeseburgers and make me change my score or try to persuade me to score the game differently. Like, this isn't it's not the way it works. Uh, you know, we made up. We were fine. We, once the other games came out, I was like, I'd love to, you know, review these. and But whatever. Yeah. They, had, they had internal marketing goals, right? Right, which you're not on the marketing team for that mm -mm. year. Mm -mm. <laughs> Writer. Uh, I feel like this, I don't get that mentality a lot anymore. I see it every once in a while, but I think the the kind of trend of not giving video games like a rated score with reviews is helping that. But I would like your thoughts on like, I can't remember what outlet it is, but there's some outlets that are kind of just getting rid of a number score or a letter score altogether. And their reviews are just words. Yeah, they're just words. Um, well, they're, they're not a Metacritic, therefore. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I have mixed opinions. I think, I think any numerical scoring system is flawed. Like when someone gives a game a 10 out of 10, I'm like, well, that's just BS. You know, like there's no perfect. Because mm -hmm. in my mind, that's a perfect game, right? Like right. 10 out of 10, that's perfect. And I just think that's lazy. Like no way. You know, and, and my perception is that's a perfect game. And so that's probably the, the problem, but I think most people think that, right? Like, if you give it a 10 out of 10, there's, there's nothing. Like, I think IGN was scored Resident Evil 4 Remaster 10 out of 10, and I was like, mm, you know. <laughs> but then, of course, what did I do? I went out and got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the scores still have a value, and they're strong, and they're influential. Um. Because gamers are nerdy and like to measure things and want to rank things and yeah. want to talk about how, like, it's fun. Like, oh, you you know, that game got a 9.7, that game got a 9.8. Like, let's fight. You know, let's talk about it, right? Like, people love that. And that's just a, that's a super nerdy video game thing to do. And you're not going to stop it. Like, it's going to keep happening. Um and the in not scoring your game um, and just using words is very mature and very l literate and very non-video gaming, like, you know, Rolling Stone and movie mm -hmm. scores and things like that. Um, it eliminates you from the, the conversation to a degree. It eliminates you from 
the mechanism and the system of scoring and Metacritic. Um, so I think there's a strong value in that. Like, hey, we don't want to be part of your Metacritic system. Uh, sorry. If you like, if you want to read our scores, like the writing's good, our reviewers are know their stuff, and hopefully this will be influential to either you know convince you to buy it or not. Yeah, I, I was just thinking. Sam and I talk about movies a lot on this podcast as we're both like film fans, and I was thinking of I was like, yeah, movie reviews they don't give a number or yeah a number or a letter score most often, and I love reading movie reviews. But I also love going to Letterboxd and giving my own star rating. Like, I do see that appeal because I do it with every single movie that I go and watch. I, yeah. in my brain, I'm like, okay, what is, what is this uh, star score? Sometimes I'm like, ah, it's five stars. I'm like, it's not really a five star, but I'm like, I just love this movie so much that yeah. I'm doing yeah. it anyways. And I normally yeah. will like say something like that, but yeah, it's. I mean, I, I, I would think that if all the editorial teams agreed to not score other games, a bunch would break off and be like, screw it, we're going to score them. You know? Like, yeah. it's, it's, the desire is too strong. Yeah. I have to tell you, one of my favorite um, scoring systems is actually from the San Francisco Chronicle. And they have a little man in a chair. <laughs> and it's a little illustrated man. It looks like it's from, like, the 50s. There's this little dude, and, he's, and, and, and if he likes the game, he's like, getting out of his chair and he's clapping he's like yeah. <laughs> and if he and if it's like a that's so it's a five point score system but it, there's no numbers or letters it's just this little man and if he if you know if it's a pretty good move you know if it's a b like he's kind of at the end of his chair cl clapping if he, if it's like a middle of the road he's sit there kind of you know with his hands on his lap and then at the end like if he doesn't like it he's asleep in his chair yeah and i, and and I just like that yeah, they that, have the empty chair too. Yeah, right after, he's like sleeping, chair. and then there's the empty one. I just yeah. looked it up. That's really cute. Yeah, so that's a brilliant scoring system. I think that's my favorite. I love that because it tells you everything you need to know. Like, if there's no one <laughs> in the chair, man, that that movie sucks. Yeah, <laughs> but you kind of want to read it anyway. You're like, oh, okay. Well, this he really hated it, huh? Okay, yeah. Like, Why is the man sleeping? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, shameless plug. Mm. If anybody wants to, you know hear further conversations about review scores go check out this show's episode with dan stapleton um reviews editor oh, yeah. at ign uh who similarly sees you know sees the value in review scores as ign still does them is you know to to paraphrase him said that they are the most quickest shorthand way to get someone's opinion on something and like you know doug said i think there's still value in that um doug are other you know, final kind of IGN games writing uh, question for you is if anyone were to seek out your your work, um, what one piece of writing would you point them to? So when I saw that question, I thought it was just for writing in general, like not just IGN. Um, it can be anything. No, any it can yeah. Okay, cool. Because the, th the story that I felt like I did the most research on and did extremely well in terms of traffic. Um, and I did, I did like seven interviews for it. it was, it's called The Rise and Fall of the Sega Dreamcast. And it was on Gama Sutra, which is now Game Developer. Um, and it basically interviewed uh, the former VP of communications, Charles Belfield, 
and he's passed away. I, I've um, interviewed Peter Moore, who used to be the marketing executive at Sega. I interviewed um, Bing Gordon, who was the former chief creative officer at EA. Uh, I've, I interviewed the North American Sega president, Bernie Stolar. He's also passed away. Um, and I got all of their opinions on what happened with the Dreamcast. And they were all in really crucial positions at you know, Sega and EA um, to, to, to be able to tell that story. Um, you know, because the Sega Dreamcast didn't really last that long. <laughs> it had a lot of hype. There were some really powerful people that put it, that system together. Um, it was a kind of a revolutionary system in a lot of ways because it, was, uh, it included online gaming before online gaming was the thing. Um, and they broke a ton of records when they launched it. Um, and some of the games that came out were, were just amazing. Um, and so that piece really tells the story of how they decided to build it. They, um, what they did in order to change the market, the market's mind about Sega's consoles, because they had really dug themselves in a giant hole with the Saturn. Like the retailers hated the Saturn, they hated the marketing, they hated the way they did it. Um, Sega, you know, really had to work hard to get the Sega Dreamcast out there. Um, and then there was like internal battles between which engine they were going to use, which system they were going to use. Um, and then, of course, there was like this big battle between EA and Sega because EA didn't have its sports games on the Dreamcast. They they had there was a big fight um, between uh, Larry Probst, uh, the uh, president of EA, and um, Bernie Stolar about about having you know EA Sports on that system, and I interviewed all of them about that, and there really were a lot of stories that hadn't really fully been told. So when I put it out, um, when I wrote it and it was published, I think it was like. Um, uh, 2011 or 2012, um, and it had a bunch of like reveals in it, like the, the story of why he didn't have its sports games there, the story of you know why it was killed, um, a lot of stuff in there that hadn't really been fully fleshed out from the you know from the guys who were on the systems. Did um, I'm kind of looking at the article and just briefly skimming. So since they didn't have the EA games, is that where 2K games came from? Yeah, yeah. Well, 2K games already had games. Um, Bernie Bernie basically was like, in, in order for us to have a strong, they, Bernie Stoller was smart, shrewd, really interesting businessman. Uh, he had run Sony for a while. He would basically was like, if I'm going to launch a console, we need our own first-party sports team. We need to we need to be able to publish our own sports games because it was it was really popular at the time and and in that period of time there were so many sports games on the market oh my god Namco had sports games like Capcom had skiing games or snowboarding games Sega had sports games EA had sports games you know Atari had sports it was everyone had sports games they were all trying to you know do the best baseball football basketball games. Um, but uh, yeah the the major fight was like. EA said, look, we'll be on your system, but we want to be exclusive EA sports and no no other sports teams. And Bernie was like, 
Yeah, uh, we already have uh, visual concepts doing all our sports games, so that's not going to fly. Mm-hmm. And then that was over lunch, and they like, were like, okay, it's not going to work out. I mean, I'm simplifying it, obviously. But basically, that was that. He was wow. like, no, we're not doing it. And so wow. Bernie's like, well, I'm not going to just can this whole studio that we bought and have makes great games. We're going to make the best effing sports games ever, and you guys are going to regret it. And then like a year and a half later, you know, Dreamcast was dead. So, oof. yeah. But you know, that's, it, that's, go ahead, go ahead. Like you noted with the people quoted in the story now having passed, which is unfortunate, like so great that the story is told because, you know, that, that, that could just be a gap of history that's never documented. Yeah. And then the, what was great is that um, the editors at Gumswitch really liked it. And every year on nine nine ninety nine, every year after that was that's the date that Dreamcat lost. They would, they, the anniversary date, they'd post that story again. So they would repost it like for for like ten years. They reposted it. So I felt really good about that because I'd done a lot of research. I'd interviewed a lot of people. I I knew the story. I didn't know all the stories, uh, and I was able to put it together in a big piece. Um, nine nine ninety nine is a great day to launch something. Yeah, huge. Yeah. The other one was, um, and we talked about it, the other story would be uh, the literature of games. I'm not actually too proud of the writing in it for a story about literature and games, but uh, the idea was cool because, um, you know, we talked about it before, I think, Sam, but it's, you know, what are what are all the books that have really influenced games, right? It's not just Tolkien or H.P. Lovecraft. What are some of the other ones? What are some of um, the stories that... that um, we, we should be reading about and 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 why why is why are we so fascinated with the same um s- sort of set of books right and at the time i actually wrote that um it was cool because god of war had just come out and that's all based on greek you know greek mythology and then ea decided to put out dante's inferno which is of course based on italian um and catholic um r- religious mm-hmm. Um, history and mythology, so that was kind of fun. Um, and then later on, I actually got asked to speak about games and literature in um, the Bay Area Book Festival, so that was kind of cool because they looked oh, it up and cool. they called me, and I was like, "How did you find this? How did you find me?" <laughs> <laughs> the the cool through line between those pieces, even as as you know, unrelated as they are, history of Dreamcast and the literature of gaming is just this idea of being culturally literate, whether it's the, you know, the literature informing the games that we play now or knowing the history of the games and how that led to what's coming out today with, you know, the falling out of Sega and the history of EA and 2K Sports. Um, Definitely, that is writing and and reporting that I really value and, and hope does not get lost. The only other one I would say, and this, it was um, as a when I was freelancing, you know, IGN and Kotaku were not friendly. So after I was freelancing and I left IGN and I'd done a couple editorial things, I did some freelancing work for them. Uh, I did a story called "It Takes a Global Effort to Drain New Infinity t- Blade to Bosses Billion Health Points," and I was like, <laughs> and it, uh, they just loved that story, and it was uh, uh, Donald Mustard at the time um, was who's, you know, the guy who is the designer for um, Fortnite at the time, um, he made this, his studio got bought by Epic, and so they were on phone games, they were making mobile games, Um, and they had a game called Infinity Blade, which was, 
a weird little game, but it was really good. Uh, and the second one came out, and one of the uh, one of the ideas was that uh, one of the sort of challenges was to get a number of people to come in and beat the boss uh, either together over a period of time, and if a bunch of people were able to do it, they'd get this big reward. But it required a kind of a you know a quote unquote global effort. And when I interviewed him and for the story, he was checking his phone, and I was like. Sorry if I'm if this is a bad time. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just checking the numbers on whether or not we've reached our goal yet. And I'm like, what mm. goal is that? So while we were doing the interview, he was telling me about whether or not the players had hit this goal yet. And it, it was one of these sort of real life instances that uh, was really cool. And so that's how he led the story. And Kotaku really liked it. So that's it. Those are the only ones. Everything else is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for the recommendations. We'll make sure to link to all of those in the description. And that bridges us nicely into our our next phase of your career to discuss, which is, you know, post IGN, you did, you founded or founded or were leading GameTap? Uh, GameTap already existed as a a game subscription service. Um, I helped launch the editorial component to that. And then so from there, you did other games journalism work like director of content at Daily Radar. You were freelancing at outlets like Gamasucha, Kotaku, CNN, Newsweek. Uh, what were you looking for post-IGN professionally? I was actually not sure. I was actually pretty confused. Um, like I told you before on the other podcasts, I had, uh, I had the uh, IGN syndrome, which was I had been there for 11 years, and I thought that's how the world worked. And outside of IGN, um, everyone worked a little differently, and I kind of missed the sort of, I don't want to say fraternal, because fraternities have a bad sort of rep, but I missed the sort of brotherhood and clubbiness and comfort of being able to be at IGN. Um, And I had been there a long time and gone through a lot of changes, so that was kind of like my editorial experience for a long time. And when I left, I was like, I don't, I, you know, I wanted to write some stories. I wanted to do research pieces. I wanted to do big features. I wanted to do interviews. Um, I was making money doing mock reviews, so none of that stuff ever gets published publicly. Uh, I was doing some consulting, uh, and I was writing some stories here and there. Um, you know, I was. I, I mean, to answer your question, I think, yeah, I definitely was confused or really just uncertain of where to go. So I just kept whatever was interesting to me or I thought was a smart idea, I would pitch it out and I would pitch it to a couple of publications and see who, which one would pick it. Um, you know, I did some pieces for VentureBeat um, and I liked some of those. And but golly, you know, gosh, wow. At that point, that was after this sort of Great Recession, games journalism just paid so badly. Like I had built myself up and made more money each year because I'd gotten promotions or whatever. And then I left IGN and then I had these big editorial jobs. But once I started freelancing again, it was like, oh my God, freelancers get paid nothing. You know, (laughs) they get paid garbage. It was so depressing. So for a year, my salary went, it was like, cleaved to like 70% of what I was making before. And it was like, I was doing as much work trying to pitch the stories as I was writing them. And I was like, this is not wow. going to fly. I have 
a house, I have a kid, I have a wife. I I have to write like ten more stories a week just to, you know, barely scratch bottom. It's like, mm, this is not gonna fly. So I think after what happened was, you know, after doing these pieces that I felt confident about and I felt like they're a good representation of what I'm capable of. Um I uh I was like, I'm gonna do, I wanna do anything else besides journalism now. I wanna I'll do PR, I'll do social media, I'll do production, whatever. You know, I just want to be in the games industry. Um and that's when uh you know I was going to E3s and I was talking to people and um Matt Atwood from Reverb, who I, Matt Atwood who was the general manager there. Um he was at Reverb Communications and it's probably started like eight months before me and he was like, Hey, what are you what are you doing these days? And I was Oh, freelancing. It's like, do you want to want to work with us? And I was like, um, I don't know. Yes, no, I don't know. Tell me about PR. Um, as I'd always known about public relations from a journalism standpoint and known the people, and I liked all the people I work with most of the time, um, and I knew that they were very business-like and very friendly to me um, because I was a journalist. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, part of the interesting thing about leaving IGN and going to different work for publications to see who actually was your colleague and your friend. Some people were and some people weren't. Um, but uh, yeah, they they were like, you ha the only big deal was I lived in Redwood City, which is in Northern California, um, in between San Francisco and San Jose. This is kind of where all these publications were um, and developers and, and publishers and uh, uh reverb was in twain heart which is this little ski resort up in the mountains like three three hours east like a population 2500 <laughs> and they were like yeah if you want to work with us you have to move here and i was like oh okay well um so you know i had to consider that i had to consider moving my family out there i had to consider you know renting our house out um what was it like in Twain Heart? What's it like living in the mountains where it snows, you know, six months out of the year? There's only 2,500 people who are mostly white and go to church. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but there were a whole lot of churches out there. And if you wanted to be part of a community, you had to join a church. Um, actually, none of the people in Reverb were actually in churches. <laughs> <laughs> so we all hung out together, but my wife had a hard time up there. And my daughter was like okay with it because she was like five or six, um, but uh, we well you know we decided to do it because it was a career change. There weren't any other opportunities that were coming through, um, so we uh, rented our place. We moved up there, um, and I started working in public relations. So starting at Reverb. What surprised you? What did you feel like you were prepared for? And, and what do you feel like you were not prepared for coming from a games journalism background? Um, well, I, I, you know, my perspective was, I don't know. I know some of what this looks like from the outside, but I don't know. Like, I know what the pitches look like. I know what the, mm -hmm. the gigs look like. I know what an event looks like. I know what a good preview you know, session looks like, a review session. I know what people were doing you know, when they were pitching me. Um, but I didn't really know anything else. Um, so I think the, 
the key things were the things that helped me. So your question is, what was I prepared for or what were surprises? Yeah. Um, so I was pretty organized. Um, I had a good network of people that I could call up. I knew a lot of journalists. Um, I was a good writer. I could write fast. Uh, and I knew games. So a lot of those things, all those things really helped me. Mm-hmm. What I wasn't prepared for was the strict hierarchy of power. Um, there was like, I was a, I was a game director. Like they hired me as a game director or PR director, but I clearly didn't have any of the skills yet to be a director, but they were like, you're going to be that. Cause you have this other history. And I'm like, okay, but <laughs> how am I going to learn to be a director? And I'm really like maybe a specialist or a junior or whatever. And they're like, you'll just learn on the fly. We're, we're like gritty, you know, blue collar team. You're, you're going to just, we'll coach you. Everyone will help you. And I'm like, okay. So um, I think the great irony that I saw was the first two clients I had were Majesco and I had to work on Zumba games. <laughs> and, you know, I would never have touched those games had, had I been a journalist, like never touched them. And Majesco was not known for making quality games. So I put, I was put on a, a pretty much a publisher that made bad games um, and I had to be really happy about them. So I was not prepared <laughs> for that at all. But I did reach a point when I'm working on it that I realized I don't have to like this game personally to work on it. And that was a big deal. Like, I mean, I guess everyone comes to that conclusion or maybe that's just a given, yeah. but for me it was like, Oh, I don't have to like the purple tinsels and the smiley dances and <laughs> the mechanics or any of this the marketing ugh, it was just like the work. Like, they they were very successful. They're very successful games. They did great. Majesco and Zumba made millions and millions of dollars. Had a lot of people buying their games, but I was not one of them. Um, so I was I was not ready for that. Um, the hierarchy was real. Like it was like me and then my boss, my manager, and then the owner. And sometimes they were just like, "That's not how you do it, Doug." And I'm like, "But." And they're like, "No." And then there was the client, right? And the client was like, the client was everything. And um, we had there was this really great woman, Abby Olivier, uh, Olivia, who worked uh, in the position that I took over when she left because she had two kids and she wanted to do some other stuff. And everyone at the studio, particularly all, all the folks I work with on the Zumba Gibbs, like, oh, Abby was so great. She did all these things. This is how she did it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Damn that Abby, you know, <laughs> she was so good at everything. And uh, that's a message to me. Like you should do what Abby does, you know? And I was like, all right, well, at some point I thought, well, why was Abby so good? What did she do? And so I asked everybody and they were like, Abby knew what, to, knew how to answer the client before the client asked the question. Abby was one step ahead of everybody all the time. She knew what to do. She got everything organized. She talked to the people, the right people. She got it all done. And then when they got on the call, it was like half an hour call because, you know, the weekly PR call because Abby knew what she was doing. Um, and she had come from a, uh, a sort of broadcast background. So she had some connections in TV and she was really good at job. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be like Abby. <laughs> That's that's how I'm gonna succeed, and so luck. You know, I went, th- I worked for like 20 different clients, um, 
me and Majesco, maybe we weren't the best coupling, you know, and we, we did really well for them. But uh, like the other irony was where I was not prepared was that I worked for a company called Amplitude and Amplitude worked for um, Iceberg. With, Iceberg was the publisher from the Netherlands and Amplitude was the developer and Amplitude was a French developer that left Ubisoft. They wanted to make real, they wanted to make um, 4X games. Um, for extra strategy games. Um, so their first, they left Ubisoft, it was a great story, they left Ubisoft because Ubisoft was like, yeah, we're going to cancel all the 4X and strategy games because no one really wants those games anymore. Under said thing was, they're not selling enough copies. There is a market for this, but we're too big of a publisher. And if we're going to put our resources into this game, they need to sell a lot more. So what did... You know, what did these three guys do, Max and Roman and um, another guy named Matt? They all quit Ubisoft, started their own company called Amplitude, and the first thing they made was a 4X game called Endless, Endless Space. And it was very successful for an indie game, and Iceberg published it. And PR, the PR team was Reverb. So um, I picked it up, and I started to work with them on Endless Legend, and I absolutely loved these guys. They were so nice. They were funny. They were French. They were very, like, cool. Like, they were really into games, but they're really, they weren't assholes. They were really great. And they taught me a lot of stuff. They were like, hey, when you put your, um, when you, when you give us your coverage report, we want to know your opinion. And I'm like, you know, first thing you know when you're going to PR, it's like, doesn't matter what you think. Uh, <laughs> just, Give them what they want, and then if they ask you your opinion, then you tell them, but don't give them your opinion beforehand. So, and I, you know, it's like, I've been a reviewer for whatever, 12 years, so I was like, this is a hard lesson for me to learn, until I finally learned it, and then they're like, hey, what do you think? And I'm like, are you sure? You're like, because I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> do you really want to know? <laughs> they're like, yes, tell us, tell us. And I was like, okay. So we formed a relationship, and then I was able to sort of get in front of them and be a really good PR person for them. You've touched on some really important bits. If to kind of like reframe the question right now, we have a lot of journalists who listen to this, and I know a lot of journalists who are kind of looking to make the leap from journalism to PR. Just mm -hmm. with the state of how journalism is right now, we know there's been a lot of a lot of shuffling, a lot of layoffs. If there's something that you would like, what advice would you give them? Um, for maybe like it could be any kind of journalist, but what advice would you give if they're thinking about moving to PR? Mm. Well, I'd say that um, it the the hardest thing was being the focal point of a lot of marketing person's attention to being just like a junior PR person. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like I was saying, like, I had to just throw my ego under the rug and just stomp on it. And, like, it was not part of the equation. Um, I knew that was coming, um, but that was, that was definitely – so for me, I would recommend, like, making sure that you understand that you're part of a bigger process. You're part of a bigger team. Um, they're making the game. They have a lot of different opinions about games, just like journalists do, but they're working on a game. Um, I would say the other thing that was really valuable for me was to understand the infinite love and passion 
that developers have for their own games is hard to fathom. Mm -hmm. And if you're not into the game, you should not be working on that game. If you're on the, if you're like part of the development team, like I was with DE or here at Pearl Abyss, like you can, in PR at an agency, you can, you can be neutral. You can be stoic. Um, you probably should be pretty into the game or know it pretty well, but um, it's not a requirement for you to play it. When you're on a development team, you should be, you should have a lot of knowledge of the game. I think most developers or publishers require that. You should be able to understand the audiences really well, what kind of language they're using, you know, what are some of the issues online if they're, you know, online multiplayer issues or what are some of the glitches or problems or memes with the game. You should know those things, at least on the surface level, know them, even if you don't know them deeply. Um, and, and you have to show an incredible level of respect um, and pride in that game and in that company. Um, like it's kind of like joining a cult to a certain extent. <laughs> Like you have to, you can say it like, oh, you don't have to buy in, but <laughs> at Dizzle Extremes, man, everyone was in 200%. So yeah, you're that spokesperson for that game and that studio. Yeah. That entire company, you're now the voice between them and journalists. And I personally, I think, yeah, it helps if you're a fan of the games, Um from my own perspective, I, I don't think you need to. I do think everyone should, you should be playing the game that you're working on just so you have a, like you said, a deeper understanding of what is that game? How does it work? Cause it's one thing of like reading a fact sheet of like, what are the features? What is this game compared to like actually playing it? Um, I think if you're good at your job in PR and you're good at client relations and communicating, you don't have to be the biggest fan of your the games yeah. that you're pitching. You don't have to be a fan. Yeah. Right. But, um, yeah. But, but like the level of respect changes when they understand, when the developers understand what you know about the game. Yeah. Now, yeah it, like, so that, like they, sorry, they, they don't disrespect you if you don't know it, but the level of appreciation and respect is deeper. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you have suggestions or if you want to do some things, that may be different than they've done before, that really helps you leverage um, the kinds of things you might want to do um, and, uh, as an internal PR person. Yeah, I think that's one of our greatest like strengths. When when we get hired by clients, I mean, yeah, we could do the, write the press release and pitch things, but I think what we're most valuable for is providing that like strategic thinking and our thoughts and our ideas because we are that bridge for them between like, what is it that press are looking for? What is it that the, we're not always community, but sometimes that kind of gets woven in. Um, but so, yeah, I, I'm a fan of, yes, sharing our opinions and thoughts, but like you said, sometimes clients don't want that and that is yeah. okay. They yeah. pay us. So if that's not something they're looking for, then we will respect that. But we find like nine times out of 10, if you understand the game and the audience and the reporters and the landscape, they're going to respect your strategic thinking and thoughts yeah. and recommendations. Yeah. 
For sure. And I would add um, to your initial question, I think it was really important that um, I'd add, like I would, if I was a journalist switching into public relations, I would recommend that people really leverage their writing abilities. Um, if you were an online writer and you were writing news or you were writing previews or you were under embargo, being able to write fast, to be able to organize your thoughts and put it all down on paper and to be able to pivot regularly are super valuable skills. They may be quote unquote soft skills, but they are really super valuable. Mm -hmm. Like if you're like, yeah, I can write that up today. People, people, you today? Yeah, I can write them two hours. Okay, cool, great. Now we can count on Doug to write anything we want for him you know, in two hours. Like when I, I, I worked on this, um, it was this. It was called Light Shot. It was this incredible laser tag game that this entrepreneur had come up with. Um, it was like you know, um, remember those uh, 3D model, the 3D systems that would create like whatever you want in you know two days. So they made these guns. They were light guns, and they had GPS monitoring, and they had little like light um, emitters, and then you'd wear a little tag on your chest, and you could play this light gun game and. And you use your phone. So it was a mobile game. And it was really cool. It had all the like, you know, the internet of everything kind of ideas in it. Um, we pitched it to IGN and they loved it. They ran around to this giant video. And, but I had to, like, they're, they were really all over the place. That team was a very small team. And so as a, as a, as the PR agency, I pretty much wrote their white papers for them. I wrote the objectives. I wrote the goals. I wrote all of that for them. And they were like, thank you. This is what we needed. This is now going to be our Bible. And I was like, yeah, I, I couldn't work on this any longer without this <laughs> shit. Like I had to put it together because I couldn't handle it anymore. I was like, it's so discombobulated. It's <laughs> like, uh, organize this quickly. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah. I'm, and the only other thing I'd say is, and, and this is, you know, you, you have to have a really good attitude and you just cannot give up. You just have to be like, yeah, I failed. I'll do better next time. Or yeah, I'm open to that idea. I will try that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, can't look at the world as black and white. You kind of just have to go in and go. I'll do whatever. You know, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Um, try to get good at the things you like. If you get good at things that are really crappy and you don't like, then they're gonna the team will ask you to do those over and over again. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, you know, working in retail was really helpful because it's like, you know, you know that the customer's the king, so you know that your client is always going to be right. And you can try to persuade them otherwise, but ultimately you understand that relationship, which is you're helping them succeed and they're in charge. Those are all super valuable for me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. D did you feel like your experience having managed the editorial teams, whether it was IGN or at the other um, news places you worked afterwards, helped you with the teamwork and account management side of Oh, PR? yeah, totally. I put – there was a style guide that we had used. So, for, for instance, just like consistency in writing. So we had a style guide at IGN. I had help put that together. Um, I had put the one at, together at Next Generation. And so we had a style guide that no one was using um, at, at Reverb. And I'm like, we're going to resurrect this. I'm going to lead this. This is all going to change. This is all going to be – everyone's going to get a copy of this. This is how you write your stuff. If you have any questions, refer to the style guide. And I gave like a demo talk on it, and everyone like applauded afterward. And I was like – 
you don't need to applaud. Just fucking follow the style guide. <laughs> but also um, pitching. Like I really knew how to pitch journalists because I've been pitched to a million thousand million times. And um, that's not, those aren't accurate measurements. Um, but, but like a lot of pitches that our team is writing were not good. And I was, I was like, that's a bad pitch. Rewrite the subject head, rewrite this pitch, make it shorter, make it more accurate. Give them what they're looking for. Journalists are looking for a good angle. They're looking for assets. They're looking for you know timelines. They're looking for an opportunity to create a story that no one else has. So are you giving them that? And so a lot of people I worked with didn't really understand those as priorities. Or they did, but they weren't really sure how to get there. So I helped them get there. You mentioned as part of your advice and the mentality that you needed to gain or you learned to gain through PR, uh, especially in-house with the developer, was this idea of being the evangelist or the enthusiast for it. Br bridging your time at Reverb to joining Digital Extremes, um, what, I guess first, how did you make that move from reverb to digital extremes and what would you say with the biggest differences were going from in from an agency to in-house um so yeah you know i worked at reverb for four and a half years and i thought that it would be great to work for a publisher or developer um digital extremes at the time was looking for a pr manager um i knew the woman uh meredith braun who ran she was the vp of publishing um, and I told her I was looking, and she didn't actually have a very good opinion about Reverb, but she and I had worked together, so she knew my work um, and me. We were actually friends. Like, we actually became friends over all the years pitching because she's just really fun and smart and kind of outlandish. So we were, I'm like, I like you. Let's hang out. So, um, But she decided to hire me. She bumped me up from PR manager to director, and when I got there, what I was prepared for was putting together PR plans and creating pitches. What I wasn't prepared for was how much people hated free-to-play games. People hated them. They didn't like it. And Warframe was not a new game. Warframe was an old game. At two, in 2016, when I joined, um, uh, they had been out for three and a half, four years. Um, and their story is remarkable. So uh, I, um, I think the most valuable thing that I did was actually something that Meredith's suggestion. And, and so Digital Extremes was, it is a Canadian company. They're in London, Ontario, which is about two hours west of, of, of uh, Toronto, in a little farm town, a suburbs, just nowhere. It's just like another suburb. Um, and... The, the U.S. office was in Irvine, and it consisted of like six people. So I joined that team. Um, so what was really difficult was working at the time so remotely from a team that was about 300 and working in a giant studio um, three hours different time in Canada uh, and to this five-person team that was working remotely in Costa Mesa that was just like, it wasn't even a studio, it was just like, we rented some white building, you know, and we were in there. And it was just generic. It was nothing. It didn't feel like working in a game studio at all. Um, so Meredith said, 
you need to come up and spend some time with the team. And I was like, okay, great. She's gonna, you're going to come up here and spend two weeks. I was like, okay, whatever you say. Seems like a lot of time, but uh, I'll, I'll do it. Um, the, one of the most valuable things for me was just hanging out, having lunch with people. Also, interviewing all the key people uh, on the staff. So as a journalist, that was really valuable for me to be able to interview people. I went in, I interviewed the creative director, Steve Sinclair. I interviewed the president, um, James Schmaltz. He was the founder. I interviewed a bunch of the game studio guys. I interviewed producers. I interviewed everyone I could over two weeks. And I got an incredible amount of information from them that helped me shape the PR plans. Um, they really didn't like the press at all. They still don't. Sorry to say it. They would rather just work with their community. Um, I learned that, and that was really hard for me to understand because I'm like, journalists are good. They're good. They do good things. I, I, I know. Like I, I believe in you know journalists to do good things, and they're like, their opinion was, um, yeah, cool, whatever you want to do, that's great, but you're not a priority for us. The community's a priority. And that was just like, what? And I'm not disparaging the Digital Extremes team. I love those guys. But their priority was their community. That's where they, that's, their community helped them transition from being a work for hire studio to a very successful developer that made Warframe. And if they didn't have that community that helped them, they wouldn't be who they are today. So, you know, my hat's off to them, but that was rough to to like no matter what i did no matter how great a story or cover or feature i got it was like yeah it's cool but that's not that's not the community so um that was difficult um and they were really you know they were skeptical of the press so i had to do build a lot of inroads um and i had to make sure that they're yearly conference worked well and get journalists in there and we had to convince people to cover warframe no one wanted to cover it. I was like, why is no one covering this game? They're like, ah, it's old. They couldn't, the PR person before was like, they tried, they couldn't get any stories. And I'm like, all right, well, we're going to get stories. You know, I'm, I, you know me, Sam, like, I'm like, let's get the stories, right? So <laughs> how do we get those stories, right? So we targeted all the journalists who had played it before. We found all the people that did the reviews. We talked to all of all, all the publications and said, who can we talk to about this game? This is an important game. This is a valuable game. You're missing this. There's a lot of stuff that's happened in this game. Since the last time you played it, you really should look at it again. That process took like two years. For the first two TennoCons that I went to, TennoCon was like the annual game event they had, their fan event up in um, London, Ontario. Couldn't get any journalists to come, just a few, just a few journalists, like three or four. And finally, we, like the third year, I think in 2019, we got international press and we got, you know, PC Gamer and we got some other people and they came out and they were like, holy crap, this is the best conference ever. We love it. And after that, they wanted to come to Senocon because it was this big love affair between the developer and their community. They just, it was, it made you cry. It was so such a great event. Um, so that's you know that's where I get all that like respect the developer and love the product and all that stuff because that team was super amazing. But it was rough going there. Um, you're on the inside. You know all the things that are broken and that happen and 
you can't talk about any of them. <laughs> you know, when you're at an agency, you're like, you don't know all that stuff, or maybe you don't want to, or maybe it's just good to have a little separation. But uh, once you're um, when you're in the development studio, and you know the plans change seventeen times between two weeks, you don't know that stuff when you're at an agency, and you probably good that you don't. Um, it's a lot of stress, a lot of hassle, a lot of change, and I think. I learned the true meaning of the word pivot um, when I when I worked there. This is like, oh my god, yeah. I think that's a really long way of answering your question, but hopefully it answered it. All very valuable. <laughs> I was gonna say we, yeah, like you said, we see like one percent of all the insanity that goes on with game develop game dev, but we're. But you're there too. You like you hear it, and then you're yeah, like, "Okay, this is our plan." We're and used to pivoting. Yeah, yeah. you got to be. When, <laughs> when we make PR plans, we're like, "Okay, but what happens if this gets pushed and this gets pushed? Like, is our will. PR plan pivotable? <laughs> and because it, it, it will, it will, it always does. <laughs> always. Never does. have we worked on like a PR plan that everything yeah. goes as like planned and everything's yeah. done on time. No, it's. That's impossible. Yeah, I th I worked on a game called Insurgency at Reverb, and um, it was a, it's a tactical first-person shooter that was really successful in an indie game, and um, I, you know I had been trained to like put these press PR packages together that were like, here's our PR plan for the year, right? And this is how we're going to do it, and these are all the steps, and this is everything's all worked out, and they were like, yeah, um, cool, great PR plan. Uh, we decided to do this, and I'm like. Why didn't you tell me? They're like, oh, we decided last night and we're going to put this out tomorrow. And I'm like, well, that's not the PR plan. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we just made it up. We just talked to our community and the community was like, this is what we're going to do. And so they're like, oh, okay, we're going to do what the community wants. So I, I, would, I got really frustrated and I, was, I finally talked to Tracy and Matt and I'm like, I don't understand this team. I don't, they don't listen to me. They're not following this plan. They keep changing everything all the time. Um, and so she, Tracy came up with this plan, which is like, create a three-week plan. Create a three-week plan and then try to see how that works. And I was like, wow, okay. And so that was like me breaking out of the structure that I had learned mm -hmm. to start pivoting. Um, but man, that was hard too. Like, just all of a sudden you're like, yeah, today's Tuesday and here's your plan. And then Wednesday... That plan is in the garbage, and you have to start a brand new plan. And that, you know, yeah. as PR people, you're like, you want to be able to figure out how it all works, right? And because a lot of things take longer than three weeks to make happen. Sometimes it's you need six most months. Most things. <laughs> most. <laughs> so yeah, a three week plan. I I don't even know what I would put in there. Like yeah, I don't know what I put in there either. <laughs> Doug, you mentioned the community of Warframe, which, you know, that is the first thing I think of when I think of that game. I think of the yeah. weekly broadcast, how the Tenocon, how passionate um, that fan base is. Yeah. How did, from a PR perspective, you work with the community team to make it work for you versus against you? Um, well, I once I had realized that like they were the first priority all the time, um, <laughs> then I was like, "All right, I'm going to take a back seat." And they were like a news. They were like a website that was internal that provided news about this game. So they were like a, a mini IGN inside 
of you know digital streams they had it all worked out they're like here's what we're going to reveal these are the new skins that we're going to reveal here we're going to reveal this new character here and this is what we're going to do here's our plan and they would tell us and we're like it doesn't take into account anything for marketing and pr and they're like yeah well this is what we want to do so we had to sort of figure out how to balance what made sense for the community, what could they do that made sense for them, what we could hold back on so that we could do it together. Um, you know, so the marketing and PR and community were aligned. Um, lots of conversations, lots of back and forth, not always agreeing. Sometimes they're like, yeah, we don't have the time and that's not our market and we don't care. Other times they're like, yeah, let's work together on it. Um, I think what was the really important thing that we did was we, we improved how to work TenoCon, we really had to make that work well. One of the coolest things was, um, and that was actually because of COVID, we used to have physical TenoCons where everyone go to London, Ontario and be at this, you know, everyone got to meet. But when COVID happened, we, we had TenoCon in 2020, uh, in the summer of 2020, and it was all digital. So one of the things that was a huge benefit was to get players to get in the game and be playing the game during TenoCon. And then we would film them being there. So they weren't at TenoCon, but they were in the game celebrating TenoCon. And when we put that up on the broadcast, it was this, this wild moment of all these layers of community and all these layers of things working together. Um, and of course we got huge numbers in the game. The, the DAUs and the MAUs were really big. And that was really important to us because we wanted always people to you know be in there um but uh it was a remarkable moment i'd also say that uh they they used to do every two weeks um that the the dev stream and the dev stream was basically like uh you know five key kind of big players on the dev team um and, and they would and included you know steve sinclair um, and, and Rebecca Ford and a, a number of other people. Um, and they would just talk about what they were working on for like an hour. Um, and it was very casual and it was designed to be casual. Uh, it was meant for the community, but they constantly revealed important stuff. And I'm like, why isn't anyone watching this from the game journalism perspective? Mm -hmm. I mean, the answer was like, they weren't into the game or they didn't have an hour to wade through all the fan art and cool skins and little tweaks and, you know, uh, an animation for a character that was brand new, like just didn't have time for it. And okay. But we, we, we felt like there was news that they could get. There was information that would be valuable to them. They could actually increase their numbers and create Kind of cool stories if they were tapped into uh, to um, the dev stream. Mm -hmm. So we were always trying to figure out how to pitch it. Um, and so one of the things I did was work with the team so that I could get enough information beforehand and just send out little alerts, like emails to the press saying, hey, uh, the dev, dev stream is this Friday at 2. Uh, we're going to reveal some cool things. Here's like a little summary of the things that would happen. Most of the journalists didn't join. But so I did a summary of everything that happened as from a news perspective, and then I would send it out to them. And that's when we started getting a little traction and getting some news stories. Because I was like, I'm just going to have to do your job for you. If you're not going to come, I'm going to just give it to you. And sometimes they'd pick it up, and sometimes we got more people to, to visit. So, But the idea was 
not to necessarily get a story every time, but to get them to understand that the dev stream was valuable. And at certain times it was more valuable than others. And so once they learned that like three out of the four weren't, be, weren't really valuable, but one of them would be, and pay attention. And so we, we sort of learned, we, we were able to train some journalists to get in there and see how it was a benefit to them. Nice. And what other, like during, so you were at Digital Extremes for about five years, correct? Yeah, like four and a half, yeah. What did you, what other major changes or kind of PR rethinks were you able to implement during your time there? Like you, you mentioned Tenocon, you mentioned the weekly streams, anything else come to mind? Yeah, I mean, we had a really big uphill battle, like I said. No one wanted to cover free-to-play games that thought they were junk and unfair and cheap and awful. You know, so we had to fight that perception. So we were constantly saying, yeah, this is a free-to-play game, but it's a really high-quality game. It has great features. It's got great movement. Um, it's also really fair. Like, it was really important to combat the perception of free-to-play games by constantly letting uh, everyone outside of the community know that, that Warframe... Like you could buy stuff, yeah. You could buy skins. You could buy. You could buy power, but you weren't fighting anybody to win with that power. You were playing with each other. Warframe is a you know PVE game, right? Player versus you know environment. Um, so, so what if you bought a hundred dollars worth of skins and weapons? You're not going to beat me up. We're going to work together to beat up the computer. <laughs> um, so. That kind of took a lot of wind out of the sails um, of that whole argument. And everything in the game was really important. Everything in the game, and we had to communicate this over and over again, that you could buy, you could also get for free. So the, the, the axis was spend the money or spend the time. You could buy all the stuff and do a shortcut if you have the money, if you don't have the time, like if you're working all the time and you love the game. Spend thirty bucks or fifty bucks or whatever, and you have all the stuff that you need to, you know, resources and power and weapons and all that, or new Warframe, or if you have the time and you don't have the money, dig in, spend some time, hang out with your friends, you'll get it. Um, and so that was really important for us to to show people. Uh, the other thing that I was lucky, I was lucky to be on that team because they were so forthright. And so honest, and so just like yeah, we've they were like yeah, we fucked up, we <laughs> we totally failed. This was a campaign that failed, you know, like we blew it. We're sorry. The Canadians are great at saying sorry, right? They really are. And they were like say we're sorry, we blew it, you know. And and the honesty and the forthright quality of the developers was like they were just they earned a lot of trust from their community. And their community was like, thank you, we appreciate it, don't sweat it, we're looking forward to the next update. And so like, they created this really interesting dynamic cycle where they would constantly tell the community what they're doing and the community would say, we love this or we hate this. They would listen, that's how great the community team was. That information was filtered gently to the developers who would then be like, okay, even though they were yelling and screaming, now we understand what they want because our community team was able to translate it into kind words um, and, and to not freak out, but to, like understand the value of the, the communication from the community 
and then then they were able to go all right let's let's take something that's broken that all these guys like for instance there was a um it's called coptering there was this character in the game where you could and you know you could jump up and I'm not exactly sure how you do it but you you would jump up in the air and you could shoot something and you have the scope right you have this rifle um and you could put it up to your eyes and it would just kind of bullet time you would slow you down right um and it was and they could stay up a really long time so they would have a lot of advantage over you know other players and it was a bug it was a problem it was not supposed to be like that in the game but everybody loved it and <laughs> all the community loved it like this is so cool check it out i've been in the air for like 15 seconds and i've been shooting all these guys it's so much fun so the development team was like you know what let's just not fight this let's just make this a component to the game so that became um one of the physical movements you could do in the game just jump up in the air put up your scope look through it and shoot people down um and so that cycle really worked um so we um we we the other thing to answer your question was that we really worked closely with the community to figure out some of the amazing stories that had happened in the community like for instance um this one player had uh he they had this thing called um tenogen and tenogen was a program where if you were an artist and you submitted some really cool artwork for a character and we liked it We'd accept it into this program, and then you could have that skin or, you know, leggings or weapon or armor or helmet or skin on a weapon in the game. And you would get paid for it. You get a percentage of the sales. And um, so it, it, was a, it was a thing that they did with their community. And a lot of people who were really talented artists and loved the game were able to have their their material uh, accepted through the game and they actually made money. Like it was, they made money. They, they had an income and this one guy, um, he was an artist and he was super broke. He was in debt. He was like living on food stamps. He was, he had submitted some work through Tanogen and he had his work accepted and he was able to get off of food stamps. He was able to pay off his, you know, mortgage. He was able to pay off like his mom and his student loans and all this stuff. And it was like this amazing story of the community really working and DE really working to benefit the community by accepting people's work into the game. Um, and I just thought that was, you know, that's like the best story ever. Yeah. You know? so, so we would tell those stories. We would try to get the press to understand how cool this, you know, the community's actions were. Um, and some, you know, some of the press was really interested in it. Some of the PC sets, like PC Gamer, really liked it. They dug into it. They understood it. Um, does Pearl Abyss have free-to-play games? I'm thinking Black Desert Mobile is might be one of them. Or... Um, so Black Desert Online is like $9.99. Oh, and then okay. there are, there are, there are, um, there are microtransactions in the game. Have well. you have you found that the conversation around free to play and microtransactions how has it changed um, over the years? Do you, have you found like have you had to pivot your messaging when it comes to games that are close to free to play or just have microtransactions? Microtrans um, so I think Warframe helped 
I think Warframe was one of the games that helped change the perception of free-to-play games. But it wasn't the only game. You know, there were other, a lot of other games that did that. Um, Wargaming, the Wargaming games that came out before us, they were always working on that. Um, and, uh, you know, Destiny became a free-to-play game as well, after us, of course. Note, <laughs> Destiny. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Fortnite and some other games like that, they were free-to-play so you know when when so, so like so, oh I have to say it's like older you know Gen Xers and even millennial players some of them were like eh, free to play screw that yeah. but a lot of the Gen Zers and some of the millennials were like I don't care I want to play the game I don't care if it's free they didn't have the baggage they didn't have the perception they didn't care so we had to convince some of the population that free-to-play could be good. Um, but a lot of other games helped work along the, along the way. P part of the conversation is, for Pearl Abyss, is, has been, you know, do they charge too much for things? Is there too much? Are there too many microtransactions? Um, our game is nine ninety nine, and we go on, the sa on sale all the time. We just did a sale where we were free for, like, yeah, I four saw days. Like, those headlines. Yeah, just zero. 0, 0.00 to get this game, right? Um, and I think what they've done over the years is I think they did have a much... They, there was a lot of like heavy buying in that game that was required. Like You, had, you hit bottlenecks, um, whether they were designed that way or not. Um, and I think the developers have learned over the years and recently like, hey, let up on that stuff. If people want to spend money, they will. Um, and if they don't want to spend it, they're they're going to go away. So I think Pearl Abyss has learned a lot of lessons. And a lot of the conversations that we hear now is are that Pearl Abyss gives away an incredible amount of free stuff. They always have sales. There's a lot of things that weren't used to be kind of pay to win aren't really there any longer. And the game is adjusted and evolved to be a more uh, fair free-to-play free game. So yeah, that exists. Journalists that we talk to, they don't really, I don't really hear a lot of feedback along those lines. That's good. Um, yeah, so I think that perception, that block has been kind of broken down to a certain extent. Yeah, I... I feel like most of the conversation or pushback I see around that is not so much journalism anymore as much as community. And it's probably just certain groups of community that are, like you've mentioned. Always maybe. pissed off about it. Yes. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Like everyone wants everything for free. Yeah. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Even though you're like, you don't need to buy the skins. And they're yeah. like, yeah. They just hate that that's even an option. Yeah. Building on Caitlin's question about how journalist perceptions of free-to-play games have changed over time, what other industry trends have emerged in your decade-plus in PR, and how have that affected your strategies accordingly? Oh, well, okay, that's really obvious. Um, so influencers and creators are really big than it used to be. Um, social media is kind of like a, a medium. Well, it is a medium on its own that does its own editorial. Um, uh, and um, the journalists they're still really valuable in my eyes. I think they're really valuable in most people's eyes. But um, if you were to look at like a pie graph of how important a journalist's review is, um, 
today versus it was like, say, 10 years ago, the importance of that review, depending on the site, would be a lot smaller. Um, but a creator or an influencer's percentage of the influence they have over who buys the game is way bigger. Like, if you listen to a guy named Skillup, his reviews are fantastic. He is an influencer and a creator, and he sells games. Like, if he likes a game, man, people are going to go out and buy it. Um, you know, he's not always right. I don't always agree with him all the time, but he's well-researched. He knows games really well, um, and he does his own thing. Um, and he is not – I mean, he has – he does all the things that journalists do, but he doesn't do them under the guise of journalism. Um, Ten years ago, there would not have been Greg Miller, right? Like, there just wouldn't have been people like that. Maybe it was longer than 10 years ago. <laughs> Maybe it was, like, 11 or 12 years ago. Like, you couldn't just make a living talking about games while streaming about them. Like, that didn't happen before. Um, so the media has, you know it's split away more than it used to be. Like if you're going to put a PR plan together, you don't want to just have journalists on there. You want to have what's your social media plan, what's your creator and influencer plan, what's your community plan. It incorporates a lot more now. I hope it gets implemented and integrated more. I, I see it starting to happen, but from like our perspective, it doesn't, it's not happening as much as it should because we do see the importance of creators, but a lot of companies are really keeping PR very separate from their creator. Like, yeah. And you know, I mean like PR means public relations, right? And public relations means trying to create a, a great vibe and great messaging around whatever product you're working on. Mm -hmm. Right. And to have people like your company more than they did before um, because you make great products or your studios philanthropic or, or whatever. Um, so they're doing PR. Just don't call it that, right? Um, that PR, you know, quote unquote, is dirty or bad word or, ha you know, has these connotations of like yeah. old, you know, old boy network or, or whatever. Like it has all these perceptions. And, and the truth is they're doing PR too. Like they're actually getting, like influencers get paid to say nice things. Like that was the, that's the thing that a lot of journalists that I work with are like, how dare they? Like, we got a salary, but we didn't get paid to say nice things about a game. Like, that's just breaking the rules, man. Like, you do not right. do that. Like, no one paid us to say nice things. We're like, got a salary and we worked on everything. Yeah, um, and then you then you see the people going after journalists and like, did they pay you to write this? And you're like, no. But then they never really asked. The no, they paid those that. guys though. Right, but they're and they not made... all up in arms about the influencers. Well, just... and and the thing and the thing they say is like we're just we're just creating entertainment. Right. We're entertainers. We we are we're not. We don't want to be journalists. We don't claim to be journalists. Uh, yeah. You know, fair. Yeah, kind of different skill sets, but doing essentially the same thing. But like you know, if you're going to put a PR plan together now to have a game reviewed, it's got to include influencers yeah. like they're super valuable in terms of shaping people's opinions about a game if they like a game or if they don't like a game if they're masso minus on it even if they get paid the good ones are like yeah i'm getting paid to do this but actually i kind of like this game and here's why i like it you know mm -hmm. that's influential and you know my daughter 16 she doesn't read magazines she doesn't read the newspaper she looks at tiktok she looks at you know twitter she looks at what her friends are looking at everything's digital she does not care. 
She's never looked at a newspaper in her life, and I would give it to her, and she's like, I don't want to read that. It's just an old thing to her that she doesn't want to mm-hmm. – it's not part of her life. So, you know, same for games. But I, but I mean, like, you know, uh, if PC Gamer or IGN or GameSpot gives a game an 8 or 9 or 10, that goes into Metacritic. People see that on Reddit. They see that on messages. Like, that all filters in to the bigger conversation still. So they're super valuable still. Mm-hmm. Like, if – if, you know, Kotaku gives a bad review to something, people are going to talk about it, right? So they're still valuable. The um, only other thing I would say is uh, journalists don't like getting on the phone anymore. They don't want to be, they, they don't want anyone to talk to them. They don't pick up, they're like, ugh, don't call me. And I, I think that's, I think that's BS. Get on the phone and talk to people. You learn so yeah. much more from talking to people, even if you're a journalist um, from the PR person, than you would if you were just texting them. So yeah. I had to call someone last week, and I started off by being, I'm like, I'm so sorry I'm calling you. I'm like, but this is going to take way less time than us having 15 emails back and forth. I was like, I... Like, we just oh, have yeah. to have a conversation. They're yeah. like, okay, yeah. it's fine. Like, there's like five pieces of logistics we have to work out. And if you really want to text this over two days, great. Yeah. But I have this really amazing idea. I'll call you on the phone and we can get it done in two minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I then was you, like, mi- I... you might not realize this, but I'm a human being and I'm not a jerk. I actually like your publication and I want to help you. <laughs> yeah. It's it always it really changes your relationship with reporters once you've either have met in person or have just like uh, actually yeah. talked to like a human. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah. Can we stop the like very formal speak over email? Let's just talk like humans. Now. Yeah, yeah. The value of talking to people in person is so incredible for everybody involved, not just for PR people. Um and if anyone tells you any different, I will argue to the to my death. Like you learn so much from people by watching their face, listening to their tone, mm-hmm. what they're talking to you about, what they're not talking about, what they might be trying to tell you without telling you, all that stuff. And you get that through human interaction. And the, yeah. and the phone is good, but it's not as good as being in person. And email and texts aren't, aren't even close. No, there's a, there's a lot of things that on both sides we might not want to put in writing. And we're like, just for safety and don't want things getting leaked or it's just, yeah. Sometimes you're like, I feel safer just talking to you face to face or if you have to over the phone. So that would be my one piece of advice to new journalists. Pick up the phone, get on the phone, talk to people. Rip the bandaid off. It's okay. (laughs) So okay. I'd be curious to to see the line graph for the, I'm sure the slope is very similar uh, to break it a math term between the like journalists understanding, you know, millennials, Gen Z, like understanding, respecting free to play games and the same line of like journalists not (laughs) wanting to do phone calls. (laughs) I think it's a generational thing for sure. It's just like the same graph. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. As we have looked at your career, one topic we talked touch on last week that um or like hinted at last week that i want to ask kind of in closing is you have worked in games for all of your career um in various roles aspects professions but how have you sustained said passion for gaming this whole time because as you noted with whether it's majesco or, or whatever have you like it's not always easy to be to be passionate about the industry even if you're working in it how have you kept that going that's a great question. Um, 
Actually, uh, my internal landscape is just like, you know, the 13th ring of Dante's Inferno. Like, I'm always <laughs> just dying inside, and I hate working games, and I'm like, I can't, I'm just like, help me, I'm burning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not true. That's just the opposite. Um, I, uh, I think it comes in waves. Like, you know, if, if I were to look at the career, like my, you know, the first First job I had was the next generation. I was managing it. I was learning everything about working on a magazine in the game industry. I was learning who all the players were, all the people were. I was learning all about how Future did editorial. It was all new. It was all really exciting. It was all just a learning experience. And I think after two years, I was like, oh, I get this. But it was still just like the tip of the iceberg because I still really understand the industry as a whole. So each time I got a new job, I was learning different aspects of you know the business, right? Like... When somebody says that a game um, has shipped into retail, you know, four million, that just means that that game is shipped into the retail business four million. That doesn't mean it's sold through four million copies. That doesn't mean that they sold four million copies, right? So those that's like one of the things you just kind of learn as a journalist or, you know, how to get information out of people. Like sometimes you're... You meet somebody and you really want to talk to them about stuff, deep stuff, and they're, just, they're not in the mood or they don't want to talk to you. Um, and then you meet them again, and you keep talking to them, and you meet them again, and then they, you finally learn a lot about that person. And they're willing to open up to you or whatever. So um, I think, you know, it's a cliche to say it's the people that make the industry run around, but, you know, that's absolutely 100% true. Um, but it's not just people. It's It's people who are putting forward their best effort. People who are really creative, people who are not like me at all, who are like, don't have boundaries and want to do new things and have crazy ideas and they want to make them work and they fail and fail and fail and then they succeed. And it's like, how the fuck did that guy do that? You know, because it's that person, that woman or that man, they just had this idea and they wanted it to work. Like when you look at Fortnite, Fortnite was not very successful for the first couple of years. They just kept working on it and working on it, and working on it. So I think it's the people who have that, the sort of the drive and the energy, um, but also like the commitment and the belief in what they're doing that makes it so exciting to work in the industry. Um, so like you know, I can cite a two dozen people who have major effects on the way I think about games. Um, and when I think about them, uh, maybe I'm getting a little emotional about it, right? I'm like, oh, I love those people. But they had, you know, I've, I don't just like them or like thank them. I love them. They're like mm -hmm. part of my extended family now. Like I don't look at them as like, oh, that's that guy, you know, I hung out with for two years. I'm like, I went through the trenches with that guy, you know, you know, Anthony Chow or Matt Casmasina or, um, you know, R Rebecca Ford or, or uh, Daniel Woodhead. All those people I worked with for a really long time. We went through some bad times. We went through some good times. And now I can call them up and talk to them about anything. So part of it is those people that you meet that you work with, you know, make sure to embrace them. Mm -hmm. You know, enjoy the time that you have with them. Learn as much as you can from them because you may not always work with them. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's something that keeps me going. Um, the other thing is 
I just love games. Like, I love playing games. I think the medium is so amazing. Like, there's television. You can watch television from your TV. There's movies. You can watch them in the theater. You can watch them at home. But games are always a, a so much more of a... Uh, there's so, such a drastic change from any other medium. And there's... I don't want to say they're immersive or they're interactive, but like sometimes the experiences you have with games are just not like any other experience. You know, you might stay up yeah. till three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, play a game, fall asleep, drooling on yourself. And you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> I am drooling on myself, but I couldn't stop playing this game. But my body gave out on me while I had the controller in my hand while I was playing it. I must really love this game. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Some uh, right. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say some of my best like memories just growing up and even as an adult all have to do with video games and yeah. just my experience of playing them. And also experiencing when someone does something really new that's just very cool. Like I love the Steam Deck. It has changed how I play games that I, most people would play on like their PC or just like having portability and VR is something that I've like really fallen in love with the past couple of years since I started working with a VR client and it just really has changed how I've thought about games, how I play them. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, VR is something that I haven't gotten into at all. And I feel like I'm kind of dropped like missing the boat on things. Cause it's like, there's a lot going on in VR right now. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I think VR is going to have its moment. I don't think it's, it's not there yet, but it's soon. I, I'll mention one thing because we were at GDC, but one of our clients, Alchemy Labs, we did like a tech demo that was hand motion. And so like not controllers, but the we used the Oculus Quest uh, 2 and Meta like imported, made it so that you could have hand tracking. Alchemy took that and then really like made the interactions just so much more than what you've ever experienced so i was like in the tech demo and like grabbing like spray bottles and it would track like every motion of your fingers and like spraying the mm -hmm. simple act of spraying a spray bottle i was just mm -hmm. sitting there i was like this is so much fun <laughs> and i'm like i don't know i yeah. i can't like conceptualize and put it into words yeah. of how different it felt but i was like yeah. i want to play every single vr game like this like yeah forget the controllers it it just was more immersive and yeah. Yeah. It's a cool feeling. It's like, this is something new. I haven't done this before. Yeah. Yeah. Video games are amazing and the people that make them are amazing. Um, and so I just want to be around them. Like, I don't want to make a video game. I, I like write stuff on my own and publish poetry and things like that. But I don't, I don't want to make a video game. I just want to be part of the process. Like that yeah. makes me happy. Um, I think the last thing I would say is, uh, Sometimes you do get burnt out. Sometimes you're just burnt and you need time off. Um, and it's important to recognize that, hey, burnout's a real thing. Like, you need a break. You need to take a week off or you need to stop playing. You need to stop working. Take some time off. Go for a walk. Go out of town. Go wherever. Like, turn off your phone. Do whatever. Like, just get out of Dodge. Um, and... Taking time off really helps. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a real thing. Like, take time off. You will get re-energized. You will come back, and then you'll look at things differently. And go, ah, you know, these things are working out well. 
And these things over here are not working out well, and I'm just going to go f attack those things and try to make them work better. Um, and I don't, I don't care what all the issues were because I've had a week off, you know? Like, yeah. So um, I think it's important to take the time off and then come back and go, okay, you know, what, what are your priorities? Like, do you want to fix stuff? Do you want to keep the things the same? You know, whatever it is that you're working on. Um, and and you'll, have a, you'll have more energy. You'll have a better attitude. You'll actually want to stay later because you miss it. Um, also, I like working. I like being part of stuff. I don't want to just sit around and do nothing. Like, I can yeah. play games forever, but then I'm like, <laughs> I got to do something. Like, that's my, my DNA. Yeah. Like, I, I you have, like... The Get muscles in. in your brain need to be worked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you can feel when they haven't been worked. And the same opposite. I always use that where I'm like, sometimes if I'm burnt out and it's getting like late in the day and I'm like, I have no brain juice left. <laughs> There's just, it's just not there. Yeah. I can't, I'm like, I can't actually work because whatever yeah. I'm going to do and produce right now yeah. is not going to be my best work. You're so spent. I need yeah. To, yeah, I'm spent. So I'm like, <laughs> I need to take a step back yeah. and go for a walk. And yeah. take my evening and just like recoup. Sometimes it's like I need to take a day, and then, yeah. like you said, and sometimes it's a week, and you come back and. I used to. I used to, in high school. I was. I played soccer and I played volleyball and I was on the track team, and then I and so for me, I realized that like working ten or twelve hours a day and then doing that for a bunch of time and not exercising makes me really upset, mm. like like frustrated and angry and upset. And then I, you know, I would start taking it out on people, and I'm like. This is not what I want to do or who I want to be. So I just started exercising more. Exercising really helps. Like go for a walk. I go for a walk in the morning every day. Uh, sometimes I work out at the gym. Sometimes I go surfing. Sometimes I play beach volleyball. Sometimes I go bicycling. But man, if you get your endorphins running and you get really calm and happy and you're like, yeah, I'll go surfing for two hours. I'll come back. I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> nothing's gonna, Nothing's going to bother me. Everything feels good. I bring it. I don't care. Like I'm not going to be faced. So that's a way to combat burnout. I think. I like that. I feel like I need to take up surfing. <laughs> yeah, my recommendation. My recommendation is take up surfing. <laughs> You're going to take away one thing from this yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> Go surf. Go surf as much as possible. <laughs> Well, there you have it, folks. Appreciate games, the creativity from it, the people making them, and take up surfing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those are all the questions I had. Um, Caitlin, Doug, and Caitlin, any final questions? Or Doug, any any thoughts we didn't touch on that you wanted to share? I would just say, um, it's like what, one of the things I feel that the, that the creators in this industry have and the people that are part of the industry have is... They've tapped into their, their childhood joy. Um, part of games is having fun and being playful uh, and, and being able to just sweep away all the clutter and just enjoy the thing that's in front of you. Um, and I think that's probably one of the most valuable things I learned is keep playing, keep having fun. Learn, it is the, learn what it is to just enjoy the moment, enjoy a person, enjoy that game, Soak it up, you know, like really enjoy it. Don't hold back um, because being able to be playful um, and enjoy a game that's, that's making you have fun, like that's a real thing. That's really valuable. Uh, like we were talking about, you, some of your greatest experiences were playing games. 
they create an incredible amount of emotion. Um, just keep that channel open um, and be open to, to new experiences because that's what keeps you, that's what keeps me alive and happy and, and able to you know, work in the industry and work on stuff that I love or stuff that I don't. It's just knowing that you know, one day I'll, I'll have this great experience and I'll be able to you know, enjoy playing games and they bring me great happiness. So go play games. <laughs> Thank you. No, that was very like inspirational words, I think, to close this episode out on. Um, Doug, where can people find you? I you're at Perlibus now, so not writing, but do you have do you use social media? Do you network anywhere? You know, online? Sam asked me this question before and I'm like oh. I'm not like I met Doug and Sano at on Twitter, but I really don't use it. Um I'm more you know, I'm at, on LinkedIn, I think it's Douglas C. Perry. Um, I uh, I have a Facebook account, but you know, who wants to be on a Facebook? So. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually on Facebook all the time, but it's clearly like my generation, so I haven't been able to give it up. So um, <laughs> I wouldn't say go on to Facebook and look me up. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's uh, those are the places you'd, you'd find me. Um, yeah, and those links that you had before for those stories. Yep, we will put those in the description of the episode. Yes. Cool. Thank you guys so much. That was so much fun. Yes. Thank you for joining us. It was. Uh, this is very great conversation, and I'm sad I missed part one, but that will be up uh, before this episode, so people will have already listened to it. Yes. Uh, you can find Sam. You can find the show. Yeah. yeah, at Real Time Strats. Make sure for some reason if you listen to part two first, go back and listen to part one. Um, and uh, yeah, you can find me everywhere at Sam Scott Mosier. Caitlin, where can people find you? At Caitlin Redwing. Yeah. And uh, Doug, once again, thank you for your time. This has been great. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. Thank you. And until next time, thank you all so much for listening.